This SCCM Eye Critical Care podcast is sponsored by Astute Medical. Astute is dedicated to identifying and validating protein biomarkers that can serve as the basis for novel diagnostic tests. Astute's novel renal biomarkers, TIMP2 and IGF-BP7, are now commercially available in the U.S. as the NephroCheck test. Innovative biomarkers. Smarter healthcare. You can find us at astutemedical.com. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Professor John Kellum. John is the Professor of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and his research interests span various aspects of critical care medicine but centre in critical care nephrology, sepsis and multi-organ failure and clinical epidemiology. John was a presenter at the recent SCCM Congress in January 2015, where he discussed the concepts of renal repair after acute kidney injury and its link to long-term outcomes. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Nice to be here. Perhaps just to set the background for the podcast, can we just revise what acute kidney injury is and why it's so important to critically ill patients? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the best ways to sort of think about acute kidney injury as opposed to acute renal failure or renal insufficiency is very much the same way we we used to uh, think about myocardial infarction and and, uh, non-STEMIs and STEMIs and all the rest of that. The term acute coronary syndrome sort of covers that whole spectrum. And for kidney injury, the, the term acute kidney injury covers really the entire spectrum from the very mild and importantly, um, perhaps not even associated with parenchymal dysfunction, which I'll talk about in a second, to the very severe, uh, what we used to term acute renal failure. And the reason that's so important is that in the same way, again, drawing analogy with, uh, with cardiac disease, in the same way that less severe events that might have even gone unnoticed in the distant past are associated with significant long-term outcomes. So even very mild transient acute uh, kidney injury can be associated with untoward events that happen to patients. And so there is some uh, need to really pay attention to the entire spectrum. Now, it's important to recognize that uh, when this, the criteria for defining acute kidney injury were first developed with the rifle criteria back, I guess, in in, uh, whenever that was, 2004 or something like that. The reason the rifle criteria, the acronym RIFLE, started with risk is we weren't really even sure if these mild changes in renal function, which is really all you could measure at the time because there weren't any renal biomarkers uh, available, these changes in renal function were significant in terms of injury to the kidney. And we were sufficiently uncertain about that that we termed the first stage risk because um, it wasn't even clear that, that you had sort of crossed the threshold into some place that there was actual parenchymal damage. Nevertheless, just like a patient who has a cardiac arrest with an empty heart and normal myocytes, if your function is significantly down in the kidney, even if it's with a kidney that's completely normal, um, you're still not going to do very well. And so um, it's important to pay attention to those patients. I guess the second half of that question is, why is it important? And I think the answer to that comes from the fact that although we tend to pay attention to 
the excretory functions of the kidney, the, the solute clearance that the kidney does, which is its primary role. The kidney also has important roles in regulating fluid, electrolyte composition, acid-base balance. And its role as a master regulator means that it's connected to all sorts of different outcomes. And everything from, from wound healing to brain function and critically ill patients. It's the major route in which we eliminate all of the toxins that patients receive, some of which we call medications. And uh, when the kidneys don't work, uh, we have major problems eliminating those, uh, those toxins and drugs. And so as a result, acute kidney injury, when it occurs, tends to make everything twice as bad. So if you come in with, uh, with a trauma and what we would have expected uh, your length of stay to be three days, now it's suddenly six days. If you have community-acquired pneumonia and you're going to be in the ICU for two days on a ventilator, now suddenly you're on the IC, in the ICU on a ventilator for four or five days. And so this is the kind of thing that happens with acute kidney injury. There was a belief not all that long ago that the acute kidney injury itself wasn't necessarily contributing to worse outcomes in the sense that it wouldn't worsen your mortality, for example, but that seems to have changed in recent years. Is that right? Well, so I, I think what you used to hear was that it was a good marker of disease severity, but it wasn't necessarily a driver. And I think we've pretty much dispelled that myth. It's, of course, both, right? It's a good marker of severity of illness, but it's also in the causal pathway for adverse outcomes. And, and the reason why is exactly what we were talking about a moment ago with the way it's uh, connected to all sorts of different things. And, I, and, you know, you can mention other effects that renal function has. Neutrophil function is adversely affected, for example, by acute kidney injury, and that has a direct effect on the ability to clear pathogen. And so patients are at increased susceptibility to infection and have worse outcome as a result when they have uh, superimposed kidney injury, for example. And so there's definitely experimental evidence that has uh, accrued in the last several years to really, I think, dispel any residual doubt that the kidney is not only a marker, but is also a mediator of adverse effects in critically ill patients. Now you referred a little while ago to the rifle criteria. Is there a best currently accepted definition of acute kidney injury and its uh, varying degrees? Well, so the history of this has been that there were about 30 or 40 different ways of defining acute kidney injury not so long ago. There was an effort, uh, an international interdisciplinary effort across intensivists and nephrologists and others around the world to try to have some standardization. And, that, and the first result of that was the rifle criteria. The rifle criteria has a significant limitation in that by creatinine, in order to get to the first stage to rifle R for risk, it's a 50% increase in serum creatinine. And there's two problems with that. One is that uh, if a patient has an increased baseline serum creatinine, say the, their baseline is two, it seems unreasonable to expect that you don't have acute kidney injury with a creatinine of 2.9, for example, right, to get all the way to three. So there's some need to accommodate lower changes, proportional changes in patients that have more advanced disease at baseline. Whereas a patient who has a creatinine of 0.8, expecting them to go up to 1.2, it doesn't seem as significant. The second part of it, and highly related to that, is that creatinine kinetics are altered in patients with advanced disease. So if you've got a creatinine of 2, it takes you much longer to get to a creatinine of 
0.3 than if you have a creatinine of 0.8 getting to 1.2, and therefore there's a delay in, in how you might use that. A way around this is to use a absolute change enough to exceed the interassay variation and probably enough to exceed the stable daily variation in creatinine, which does occur. And 0.3 milligrams per deciliter achieves those two thresholds. The problem with the 0.3 milligrams per deciliter is that certainly you need a window to look at it because if you look at it over a very long time, there are going to be changes that have nothing to do with acute kidney injury that are going to potentially alter that, changes in diet, changes in muscle mass, et cetera. And so a 48-hour window is imposed to look at the 0.3 change. But even that, I have to say, is still controversial. And one of the sources of controversy around that is that you can imagine a patient who has a creatinine baseline of 1 and their creatinine falls with fluid resuscitation on the initial presentation to the emergency department and then the ICU to say 0.7. And then their creatinine over the next 48 hours goes back to 1. Now, technically speaking, that fulfills the criteria of an acute change in serum creatinine by 0.3 milligrams per deciliter, but neither you nor I or anyone else really would call that acute kidney injury. And so we still have some work to do, I think. And then there's the pediatric version of rifle as well, taking into account the fact that children have a lower baseline and a large changes in serum creatinine for kids is unrealistic. So what we tried to do with the KDGO criteria was to try to unify these various tweaks, if you will, to the original rifle criteria, both the pediatric criteria and the akin modification of rifle, which was the 0.3, and to try to get it into to a single framework. I have to say, I think we were reasonably successful, meaning that the, the criteria validate, but I still think given the concerns around these subtle changes in serum creatinine that we're not quite there. Now, having said all of that, I don't think we necessarily can ever be all there. And what's really required, which we talk about at great length in the KDGO guideline, is the need for clinical judgment. So what defines acute kidney injury is not a change in serum creatinine or urine output. Those are criteria that a clinician needs to then apply with clinical judgment, just in the same way that EKG changes and troponin changes and things like that are used in the clinical context for a clinician to make a diagnosis of myocardial infarction, you don't make a diagnosis of acute kidney injury in abstentia. You have to uh, you have to see the patient. Now, for epidemiologic purposes, we use these criteria to extract a best guess as to whether the patient had acute kidney injury. But that's very different than what we might do at the bedside. John, the point that a patient needs to go on to dialysis or renal replacement therapy in critical care is often used as an artificial limit of care, almost suggesting that that point has its own prognostic value. Is that the case or is it more that it's simply an issue of convenience that that might be the point to draw the line? Well, I think it's more than just convenience because I do think that it's a patient-centered outcome. So if a patient requires, and of course the, the loaded word there is required because patients don't receive renal replacement therapy when it's required, they receive renal replacement therapy when we as physicians believe that they will benefit or that the benefits outweigh the harm associated with renal replacement therapy. So patients receive renal replacement therapy, they don't necessarily unequivocally require it at a specific point in time, it's a judgment call that we make. So that makes it, as an outcome measure, a little bit tricky to use. But nevertheless, it's a patient-centered outcome. Um, certainly, we would prefer not to be on dialysis, uh, even acutely. Um, now, I have some 
concern that we overuse that endpoint in the setting of acute care. When a patient is in the ICU, sedated on mechanical ventilation on a balloon pump, the addition of renal replacement therapy, particularly continuous renal replacement therapy, is probably virtually invisible to them clinically. And, uh, you know, being on renal replacement therapy in that setting for a short period of time probably isn't a patient-centered outcome. But nevertheless, the notion that dialysis is, to at least some extent, patient-centered is probably not unreasonable. Now, at your um, presentation at the Congress, you refer to the terms repair, regeneration and recovery. These seem to overlap, but are they the same thing or are they different? Well, they are different. And actually, the way I, I sort of think about it is that the terms have meaning, but also the context is important. So we typically talk about kidney as the unit of measure. And when we talk about kidney repair, kidney regeneration, kidney recovery, that's different than we talk about cellular repair, regeneration, and and recovery. And so let me just sort of walk you through that. So from an organ standpoint, repair of a damage, of a a denuded epithelium, for example, in the setting of acute kidney injury, there's a couple of different possibilities to repair that. One is to um, re-epithelialize that denuded epithelium into what would be, for all intents and purposes, a normal appearing and normal functioning nephron. That's regeneration, right? The repair by regenerating new cells, um, having cells that were undamaged uh, and healthy cells then divide and proliferate and essentially re-epithelialize the area that's been damaged so that it is in fact restored to um, its normal architecture and hopefully its normal function. That we would refer to as regeneration, whereas other forms of repair might be less satisfactory compared to regeneration, but are still better than having essentially a bare basement membrane and a normal barrier. So the normal repair, if you will, or the or the next best repair would be to fibrose that, that particular injury. And, and you might think of that in the same way as sort of a scar tissue being laid down as opposed to healthy, normal repair with reepithelialization. In both cases, whether we're talking about a, a denuded portion of a renal tubule or we're talking about a, a wound in the in the skin, the body's trying as best it can to not leave an open wound. And, and if it can reepithelialize normally without forming scar tissue, it will do so. If it can't, then, uh, then we're left with a scar. But that's, again, better than having an open wound. So those terms are used in that context. Now, when we talk about recovery, this is an interesting thing because we used to talk about recovery only from an organ standpoint, and it was in the context of organ function. And the problem with that is that, particularly when we only have crude measures of, of organ function like serum creatinine, that we don't take into account the fact that if I've lost a third of my nephrons, my creatinine doesn't change. In fact, if I lose half my nephrons, my creatinine doesn't change. So if that, let's imagine I, I lose a population of nephrons and another population of nephrons that's equally as large. So let's say a third of the nephrons are lost, a third of the nephrons are dysfunctional. If those dysfunctional nephrons can get back to a degree of function such that I have reconstituted an entire kidney function that's now two-thirds of baseline, my creatinine now will, will be back to normal because I have that much renal reserve. So 
I've recovered function, but do I really have normal kidneys and do I have the same renal reserve that I had to begin with or am I at risk for long-term outcomes? So that's a complicated thing to understand and it's a complicated thing for us to look at clinically. The other corollary to that is that cells can recover function as well. So very few cells in acute kidney injury are, are necrotic. Some cells are apoptotic, but that's not a, a large number. The majority of cells that are injured, if you will, are either sloughed off the tubule, and of course then they're lost, and for all intents and purposes they're the same as, as cells that are apoptotic or necrotic. But a, another population of cells are neither dead nor lost from the tubule, but instead are dysfunctional or shut down, if you will, or hibernating even, although that term might be a little bit more loaded than we have support for as yet. And those cells can return to function. Those cells can recover. So we have cellular recovery, which might ultimately result in renal functional recovery from the kidney as a whole. And so all of that kind of fits together in this framework of what we think about when we think about, you know, repair and recovery and regeneration. And the goals therapeutically, the, the targets may be very different as we think about all of those. Now, obviously, the most important long-term outcome of all of this is what is the long-term outcome for these patients? How do these concepts relate to the long-term outcomes that we see? So I thank you for that question. I think that is the crux of the matter, right? So if you get back a certain amount of renal function and uh, we can measure it as being different from your baseline, is that important? And if you get a certain amount of function back and we can't even measure a difference from your baseline, are you still at risk for outcomes and how does this all sort of fit together? So the most logical or most obvious relationship between recovery and long-term outcomes is the progression or the de novo occurrence of chronic kidney disease. So if you have an episode of acute kidney injury and let's say you come in with a creatinine of one and your creatinine goes to three and it recovers to a creatinine of two, we'll say. And let's say that you're a 65-year-old Caucasian female, and so that gives you an EGFR of, I don't know what it would be, let's say it's 45. You have chronic kidney disease by definition uh, if that value uh, is sustained for at least 90 days. So suddenly now you fit into a risk category that is significantly different from the risk category that you would have been in if you had, had returned to uh, your baseline renal function. So chronic kidney disease patients are at dramatic increased risk for cardiovascular disease, for example. And so the development and the progression of underlying chronic kidney disease is the most obvious and, and perhaps the most important outcome that can occur in these patients because of its significant association with mortality and, and morbidity. However, even if you don't have chronic kidney disease, by the currently accepted criterion, you can be at increased risk for these adverse events after acute kidney injury anyway. And so how does that work? So you have an episode of acute kidney injury and you appear to recover all the way back down to your baseline such that if I were to measure serum creatinine on you at 90 days, I don't find any abnormality uh, that would get you in the category of chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, there does still seem to be a residual adverse effect which occurs at least acutely in those first few months from having this episode of acute kidney injury. And, and there's a couple of reasons that might be true. One of the reasons is that even though your function is back to normal, 
as best we can measure it, your kidney may be working really hard. You may be hyperfiltering. The organ may be struggling to achieve that function. The other possibility, of course, is that the kidney doesn't just have glomerular function. There's tubular function. Uh, there's a variety of things that the kidney does that we don't measure very well by just simply measuring GFR. So is that playing a role? Quite possibly. So patients that have had an episode of acute kidney injury are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease and they're at increased risk for infection. And that risk somehow seems to be independent of whether we can put a label of chronic kidney disease on them. Now, much still needs to be worked out epidemiologically with that to understand that risk, but that seems to be true. So I would say at the present time that the concerns associated with long-term outcome with regard to these recovery, repair, regeneration aspects are both the progression and de novo development of chronic kidney disease, but also even outside of that, risk, increased risk for cardiovascular uh, disease outcomes and increased risk for infection. I guess fairly evidently the next step in all of this is to try and predict who is going to have these uh, long and short-term outcomes. Is there any way that we can predict those outcomes? Well, so it, it is certainly true that certain patient characteristics like age, the uh, severity of the acute kidney injury event itself, whether that uh, left the patient oliguric or not, all of those things do give us some uh, clue to whether or not the patient's going to have a better outcome versus a worse outcome, but they're not particularly strong predictors. In other words, even if we build complex statistical models of recovery, we're, we don't quite get there in terms of being able to predict reliably who's going to be at increased risk, although we can, we can make some progress in that area. There are some biomarkers that appear to be useful. One intriguing one is a panel of markers that look at cell cycle arrest. So there are two markers, uh, tissue inhibitor of metalloproteases 2 and insulin-like growth factor binding protein 7, which are both mediators of cell cycle arrest, uh, a phenomenon that's both important to protect the kidney from acute events, but also when it's prolonged can result in more chronic dysfunction because if you remain in cell cycle arrest, then you don't recover, you don't regenerate, uh, you don't proliferate, and you, you're left with the only option as being to, uh, to have a maladaptive repair or fibrotic outcome. So in the setting of, uh, of acute kidney injury, these markers appear to be a barometer of sorts to the severity of the injury. So much more than creatinine, can measure because it's a measure of function, these markers, which are more measures of renal stress, when they're very, very high, those patients um, have a significantly uh, worse long-term outcome from a death or dialysis standpoint, as well as residual decreased renal function than patients that don't have uh, high levels of, uh, of those mediators when they develop an acute kidney injury event. So there is some suggestion that these markers might be useful maybe together with other markers or, or alone to uh, differentiate patients that have a, a very high risk of long-term outcomes versus uh, adverse long-term outcomes versus patients that have a better prognosis. But I think much more work needs to be done. We need to be able to answer questions like, can you develop biomarkers to understand persistent acute kidney injury? That's sort of the first level. Uh, if you continue to have acute kidney injury three or four days down the line, then obviously you haven't recovered acutely. And the next question would be, uh, are you going to recover in the next week or two weeks? Uh, and then the next question is, is, you know, are you going to recover somewhere down the line or is this more of a non-recovery uh, chronic issue?
What sort of phase of the patient's illness are these biochemical changes becoming apparent? Are these the sorts of things we'll be able to identify during the acute illness itself or is it something that becomes a a follow-up issue? I think it's a bit of both because I think even though we like to think of the kidney as a, you know, or the kidneys at least as operating somewhat homogeneously in terms of the injury and repair process, it's really not that straightforward. There are individual cells and individual nephrons and there are effects which may be out of sequence, if you will, across this population of cells. Nevertheless, if there is an acute kidney injury, the first 48 to 72 hours, at least experimentally, is is definitely the sort of golden hours in which some of those early decisions, if you will, that the cells have to make in terms of if the injury is passed and there's an opportunity to uh, now regenerate and go back into uh, normal cell proliferation and re-epithelialize clear cells that are injured and then repopulate the nephron with the tubule, at least with normal cells, all that sort of, or at least the decision, the indications that that's going to have to happen tend to be relatively early but not necessarily in the first 24 hours. So there may well be a sequence of events that have to occur. So initially, the first thing to do is to try to um, prevent further damage. The next question may be to sort of stabilize things. The next step may well be to facilitate a normal repair process in the kidney. And as we understand more about how this goes on inside the kidney, it will allow us to potentially facilitate those normal repair processes so that patients can have the best outcome that is possible for that individual patient. Finally, John, to management, I guess the bastions of management of acute kidney injury remain dealing with the consequences of acute kidney injury and trying to avoid worsening the situation. Armed with the knowledge that you have now about this, do you foresee that there will be any way of improving outcomes into the future? Oh, I think so. I'm actually very optimistic. I think there are a variety of opportunities here that a better understanding of the biology has clearly opened up for us in terms of potential to develop treatments for patients that will be effective. And I think it sort of begins with what we always try to do, which is to prevent damage. That's tricky because with the exception of certain types of acute kidney injury which are more predictable, for example, in the setting of of certain major surgical interventions and things like that, we often can't predict or can't get ahead of the acute kidney injury. For example, acute kidney injury in the setting of sepsis occurs um, usually before patients present to medical attention. So there's no opportunity for primary prevention in that setting, but we can prevent progression of acute kidney injury by attending to not adding additional injury to the patient in the form of nephrotoxic drugs and and, uh, nephrotoxic procedures, like trying to limit radiocontrast exposure, et cetera. And of course, we have to balance all of these things against the need for the results of those diagnostic imaging and and the need for use of, of various medications. But it does afford us an opportunity to modify the normal progression that might take place. Back to prevention, though, um, in the setting of certain conditions like cardiothoracic surgery, for example, it may be possible, interestingly enough, to stimulate the kidney to defend itself. So the kidney, like all epithelial cells, the renal tubular epithelial cells, are constantly exposed to environmental stress. And so 
your skin uh, is a good example. It's exposed to the environment and the and epithelial cells, both in the skin and elsewhere, including the kidney, um, have defense mechanisms where they can modify their behavior, both in terms of their cell division by going into these brief episodes of cell cycle arrest, but also down-regulating their metabolism so that they can preserve bioenergetic uh, currency, if you will, and, and not injure themselves. And there may be an opportunity to stimulate that response ahead of the surgery or whatever it is that's coming down the road that is going to injure the kidney. And so we're very excited about potential options there. Things like remote ischemic preconditioning, for example, are being looked at in that setting. And, and there's some exciting results that I think are on the horizon with respect to that. The second part is if you can't prevent it, uh, at least try to uh, mitigate the damage, and that's where we get into trying to prevent additional injuries, uh, try to shorten the injury as much as possible, try to get the kidney to rest initially and, and not exert itself perhaps, and we may be uh, using pharmacological interventions to decrease GFR, in fact, acutely. Uh, we have tools like ACE inhibitors, et cetera, which could be used for that purpose. And then finally, to once the damage, once the, the threat is passed, to try to then get the kidney to get back into a proliferative response so that it can, instead of scarring down, instead of fibrosing, going into a uh, more effective repair process, which involves regeneration of epithelial cells. John, what happens to these patients after they leave the intensive care unit? They often fall into a black hole and we don't see much of them again. What do you think we should be doing for them in that follow-up period? Oh, gosh, Todd, that's really important, and, and, and I thank you for asking that. It, it's indeed uh, a particular uh, interest of mine, uh, realizing that as we follow these patients up, all sorts of things happen to them. Uh, you know, they can leave the hospital with normal creatinine, having recovered renal function uh, apparently completely by the time of discharge. And then when you look at them at three or six months, they have abnormalities again. Equally, there are patients who leave the hospital with very severe dysfunction, that they've had very little recovery, and you follow them up at three or six months, and they've, um, they've recovered fully. I think there are a variety of opportunities that we're missing uh, for these patients, and if we're simply waiting until they have a three-month follow-up visit and then we worry about trying to label them chronic kidney disease or not, when all the while uh, they may have had decreased renal function after leaving the hospital. So certainly I would hope that, that for example, a hypertensive patient you know, leaving the hospital with decreased renal function, having had an episode of AKI, one would consider very aggressive management of that blood pressure in the same way you do in a patient with chronic kidney disease. I would hope that a patient leaving the hospital with acute kidney injury that's partially recovered or even completely recovered, that they would be advised about the potential risk of non-steroidals and other types of potentially nephrotoxic drugs. And I, and I know that's actually not happening. So I think that's a real opportunity for us to, um, to really educate both ourselves and our, and our colleagues, but also patients about what they can do to keep their kidneys healthy and those kidneys that are not healthy to have them have the best chance of reaching a, a more healthy uh, uh, outcome uh, down the road rather than simply waiting for us to, to kind of plug them into our current understanding of what chronic kidney disease is. It certainly seems to further the need or further evidence for the need for ICU follow-up uh, as part of the routine management of an ICU patient. Absolutely. John, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today and uh, bringing us up to date with acute kidney injury. My pleasure. Thanks.
This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. This SCCM Eye Critical Care Podcast is sponsored by Astute Medical. Astute is dedicated to identifying and validating protein biomarkers that can serve as the basis for novel diagnostic tests. Astute's novel renal biomarkers, TIMP2 and IGF-BP7, are now commercially available in the U.S. as the NephroCheck test. Innovative biomarkers. Smarter healthcare. You can find us at astutemedical.com. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensivist and retrieval physician based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Fraser completed his undergraduate training in Melbourne before undertaking specialist training in hospitals in Geelong and Sydney. His specialist career has included time as a director of intensive care at Mackay Base Hospital in Queensland, regional director of training for Care Flight Medical Services, and as a staff intensivist and flight physician. Dr. Fraser has extensive experience in critical care education, including simulation, web-based training tools, examination preparation courses, and instructional video. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.